Welcome to another podcast from the Journal of Neurophysiology. I'm Billy Yates, the Journal's Editor-in-Chief. Today I'm discussing our manuscript collection on the neurobiology of deep brain stimulation with Dr. Mark Richardson, a neurosurgeon at the University of Pittsburgh. Mark, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Bill. Thanks for inviting me to participate. Deep brain stimulation is now a standard methodology used by neurosurgeons. Can you provide us a brief history of how deep brain stimulation has been used to treat medical conditions in patients? Sure. The largest experience uh, for the treatment of patients with DBS is in the treatment of movement disorders. And this technology has a start in the modern era in the late 1980s, uh, but actually evolved uh, in parallel with techniques to lesion uh, the brain for both neuropsychiatric indications and movement disorders as early as the 1950s. How do you actually do deep brain stimulation? How is this method used in patients? Deep brain stimulation is a surgical technique, uh, first of all, that involves implantation of very thin uh, wires into the brain, into subcortical structures uh, that are nodes and networks that are important for different types of human behavior. And uh, the surgical portion is just one part for the patient. Uh, They live with the implanted device for the rest of their lives, and uh, the device is programmable to deliver uh, small currents of electricity that can uh, alter pathological uh, brain activity in a way that benefits patients. What kinds of diseases are treated by deep brain stimulation? The most commonly treated uh, diseases are movement disorders. Those include Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, and dystonia. Uh, there is also FDA approval under a humanitarian device exemption for the treatment of obsessive compulsive disorder. DBS for these diseases is targeted to different nodes in the basal ganglia, which is a subcortical uh, network of neural circuitry that interacts with cortex to produce both normal behavior and uh, the symptoms uh, that are prevalent in these diseases. Deep brain stimulation continues to evolve and is being used to treat an ever-increasing number of diseases. What are your predictions about how this methodology will be used in the future? Well, first, I think that we'll see increasing use of DBS because a lot of patients that qualify for this surgery don't yet know about it or are not appropriately referred. In addition, I think there's a lot of room to improve how we do DBS, even for movement disorders, as we get a better understanding of the neurobiology of both the disease state and DBS, uh, which is the focus of the uh, collection that we'll talk about in a minute. In addition to the treatment of movement disorders, uh, there are clinical trials underway for the use of DBS to treat depression, uh, as well as other neuropsychiatric indications, uh, including drug addiction. With the uh, recent FDA approval of a closed-loop brain simulation device called responsive neurostimulation uh, for the treatment of epilepsy, I think we'll see uh, increasing use of deep brain stimulation systems in the treatment of epilepsy. I've heard that otolaryngology is being used for tentative treatment, too. There's that's, a trial going on. That's true. Another um, an, an indication of how broadly people are thinking about the use of DBS is uh, its use in the treatment of tinnitus, looking for a central brain target um, to treat what's a you know, very destabilizing condition for patients. And for people that don't know, tinnitus is a ringing in the ears. 
which is pervasive in some people and debilitating. Can you briefly summarize how our collection of manuscripts on the neurobiology of deep brain stimulation has contributed to the field? Sure. This neurobiology of deep brain stimulation collection is an important contribution because it focuses on both what we know and what we don't know about how DBS works. And I think collectively these papers uh, highlight gaps in our understanding that are important to fill if we're going to advance the technology. For example, there uh, is a nice review uh, discussing how both high-frequency DBS in the basal ganglia has been shown to be effective for both disorders where patients can't move very well and where uh, they move too much. Uh, in this paper, the examples are uh, stimulation for Parkinson's disease and Tourette syndrome. And the authors ask how it's possible that DBS can work well for both of these indications. There are a couple uh, nice reviews that span a focus from uh, broad neurobiological mechanisms to specifically mechanisms related to uh, altering abnormal neural activity, uh, again in Tourette syndrome. There are two papers that focus on the effects of basal ganglia DBS on the motor cortex. These are from uh, two very good non-human primate labs, uh, and they highlight work that is really critical for advancing our understanding of uh, deep brain simulation. And uh, this is work that uh, cannot be done in humans, and although there is work that we can do in humans, for instance, in the operating room that we can't do in non-human primates, uh, these are really great examples of how these non-human primate models can be used to provide information that eventually will allow uh, further development uh, in the DBS field. So the use of non-human primates is critical to further development of uh, DBS research. Well, there's no question about that. Um, without non-human primate research, we wouldn't have deep brain simulation for our uh, movement disorders patients. Um, and from that experience, uh, we've really been able to think more broadly about using DBS to treat uh, a number of brain disorders. There's another example of a paper that uses a non-human primate model um, to study the stimulation effects on epilepsy. And so there really is just example after example of how non-human primate work is uh, critical for doing work that ends up being safe to apply in people. You contributed two articles to our collection of papers on deep brain stimulation. Can you briefly summarize these articles? Sure. Uh, we have a review article on the network effects of DBS, where we took an evidence-based approach to understanding from the published literature the effects of subcortical stimulation on cortical networks. And in a nutshell, we found that uh, the field could really do a better job of studying patients who are implanted with DBS. But I think one uh, positive example is the work, uh, pioneering work done by the STAR group at UCSF, recording directly from the cortical surface uh, during DBS cases. And our second contribution was a paper where we have a sensing-enabled DBS device implanted in a monkey with uh, naturally occurring epilepsy. So this is a very uh, rare and unique opportunity to study both the disease state as well as uh, the limitations of current technology uh, for, for treating uh, epilepsy. And it's, uh, frankly, it's not possible to do that type of work um, in humans. 
uh, the same way we can we can do it in the non-human primate. So again, another example of how non-human primates have contributed so much to development of this clinical methodology. Well, thanks to Dr. Mark Richardson for his insights on our collection of manuscripts on the neurobiology of deep brain stimulation. Read this collection and others on our journal website, jn.org. Thank you.